0: If you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue making our way through the New Testament here on Wednesday nights and looking forward to tonight. The title of the message tonight is Answers to Hard Questions. And I want to just say that this is a tough, topic that we're going to be dealing with tonight, and I want to just commend all of you for having the courage to be here, because um, <laughs> sometimes these uh, type of topics aren't the funnest to deal with, but um, we're going to do our best tonight and work our way through this, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the safe space that you have made for us to be able to gather in. Thank you, Lord, for this air conditioning. And I pray tonight that, Lord, our hearts would just be open to receiving all that you have for us tonight. Lord, we pray for our missionaries this evening that are serving you in foreign lands and many of them still on lockdown, many of them um, just dealing with the same struggles with COVID that we have been. And Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters that you would um, just strengthen them, have your hands upon them. And God, that, that uh, your word would go forth. And as we tonight, even uh, as offerings are being given for them, um, we pray that... All of these funds would be used for the furtherance of your gospel and your kingdom. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have noted in our study in 1 Corinthians that in chapters 1 through 6... Paul has been dealing with problems in the church that he heard about. That some people came from Corinth and they uh, came to Paul and they said, hey, you should hear about what's going on in Corinth. It's not good. There's people suing one another. There's great division. There's uh, gross sexual immorality. And so chapters one through six, Paul dealt with all of those issues as he wrote to them. But when we come to chapter seven, Paul is beginning to deal with questions that they have written to him in a letter that we don't have. And so if you look at verse 1, it says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And so, the rest of the book, Paul is answering some questions that they wrote to him about. And it seems that the first questions that they wrote to him had to do with the subjects of marriage and singleness and divorce. And we started to look at that last week. And basically, the idea is the Corinthians were thinking, you know, we are living in this very carnal, pagan, sex crazed city of Corinth. How are we supposed to live? In relationship to that, what are we? What? How are we supposed to? You know, we know that we're supposed to be different from the world, but how do we navigate these waters? And so, Paul begins to first deal with here in verse ten um, the the struggles between believers. The marriage struggles between believers. This is what he's going to talk about first. And then he's going to talk about marriage struggles between uh, Christians married to non-Christians. And so this is what we're going to be looking at tonight. And um, let's go ahead and begin here in verse 10. He says, now to the married, I command yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now pause there for a moment. Paul begins here by saying, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And what he's doing here is he's beginning to remind them of what Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. And we have what Jesus taught on this subject in Matthew chapter 19. And I want you to keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 7 and turn over to Matthew chapter 19. And we want to look at what Jesus talked about there on this subject, because that's what Paul is referring to here. So Matthew chapter 19, go ahead and turn there. And look at verse 3. It says, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. So they're putting Jesus to a test. And saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason for just any reason these were the words that were the center of this debate and you see the issue of marriage and divorce was a hot topic in that day because there were two schools of thought two rabbinical schools of thought that really fueled this debate and each school of thought understood that the Mosaic law gave permission for divorce according to Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. And the reason that that Moses gives there in that verse is uncleanness. If your wife was found to be unclean, the question that came up and the question that was being debated by the the rabbis was what constitutes uncleanness? Does that mean your wife refuses to take a bath? Is that what he's talking about? No, that's not what he's talking about. What was he talking about? Well, in the liberal school, the school of Hillel, that rabbi, uncleanness was basically anything about your wife that caused you to sin. So if your wife did something that upset you, if she did something that caused you to get angry, then she could be deemed unclean, and that would be, according to Hillel and his school, that would be grounds for you to divorce her. Or if she said anything about your mother, Anything about her mother-in-law? Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Then she could be rendered unclean and you could divorce her. Or if a husband saw a woman who was prettier to look upon than his wife, then she would be in his eyes unclean by comparison and he would be justified in divorcing her. These were some of the things that the school of Hillel taught. Or if your wife cooked you a bad meal, She would be rendered unclean in your eyes and you could divorce her. And so those rabbis had a huge following by all of those who were anxious to get out of their marriages. Now the other school was the school of Rabbi Shammai and it was a lot more strict, a lot more unpopular. Uh, He took the conservative view that basically said uncleanness only related to adultery so the, rabb- the Pharisees come to Jesus here seeking to test him. They want him to pick sides because they knew if he agreed with the, the rabbis, the school of Hillel, then they would accuse Jesus of not taking the law of Moses seriously. But if he agreed with the more strict law, uh, school of uh, Shammai, then Jesus would become unpopular with the multitude who generally liked this easy access to divorce. Jesus, as always, gives a very wise response. Look at verse four. And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason you shall leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate this. Now I want you to note here that Jesus takes them back to the word of God. Have you not read? Let's forget about what these two rabbis are talking about. What does the Bible say? Have you not read? And he takes them back to the book of Genesis where marriage is first introduced. Now the Pharisees, they wanted to talk about divorce as it related to these rabbinical opinions. But Jesus goes back to the scriptures. He takes them back to the origins of marriage. And that, my friends, is always a great practice. Our opinions really don't matter. What really matters is what does God say about that situation? And what God says is that he calls a husband and a wife to come together. And as they come together, they come together as one flesh. That there is a oneness that God recognizes in marriage that goes way beyond the sexual union. The sexual union is only a part of it. But it's a oneness that God recognizes in the covenant of marriage. And the law of God was not that a man should forsake his wife whenever he had a mind to do that for whatever reason. But no, the law of God was, the heart of God was that a man should forsake his mother and father and that he should cleave unto his wife. That was God's heart. This is serious, in other words. It's a oneness when you come together. And notice verse 6, what what Jesus said there. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the first thing that we see that Jesus does is he's seeking to elevate their view of marriage. Marriage. They had, they had begun to look down upon marriage. And he wants to elevate their view that they would recognize that this is a spiritual and physical oneness in the eyes of God. That marriage is a binding promise with God first and then with each other. And that's why the scriptures tell us that a threefold cord is not easily broken. And that threefold cord is two people who are wrapped around that center cord, and that center cord is the Lord. So, the first thing we see that Jesus does here is he's rebuking the Pharisees and the religious leaders for not taking God's word and not taking marriage seriously. Notice how they respond, though, to what Jesus said. They said to him, well, well, why then did Moses command, note that word command, underline it, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And here in verse seven, they're referring to that verse in Deuteronomy 24 one, where Moses said that on the grounds of uncleanness, that you could put your wife away, but you had to give her a certificate of divorce. And so Jesus, the second thing that we're going to see that Jesus does here is he corrects their theology. Notice what he says to them. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, underline this word, permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so in other words this was never ever god's plan in the book of malachi the prophet malachi tells us that god hates divorce and so jesus notes here that that moses he never commanded this you're saying he commanded this he never commanded it but he permitted it let's be clear on this Jesus is saying so the first thing he's he's doing is he's rebuking them for not taking it seriously marriage and and God's word seriously secondly he's correcting their theology this isn't a command it was something that was permitted the third thing that Jesus does is that Jesus defines uncleanness notice And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced also commits adultery. Notice here, Jesus defines uncleanness as sexual immorality. And I want to just say this to you that this is that word sexual immorality means that this is broader than just adultery. It's broader, it involves any type of of sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant or with someone that you're not married to. And then the fourth thing that Jesus does here is he identifies that the heart of the problem is a heart problem. He said, this is why Moses permitted it is because of the hardness of your hearts. Your hearts were hard. You see, Moses allowed divorce. Now, he didn't make it easy. When he says that you have to give her a certificate of divorce, what he was saying was you just can't put her away. This is a legal matter and you've got to go through that process. But he permitted it because he saw the hardness of heart between a husband and a wife. That when there had been adultery, when there had been sexual immorality, that Moses saw that that sometimes the hurt was so deep and the trust was so broken that that the hearts of the victim oftentimes just could never ever get past that or sometimes it was the heart of the violator that was just so hard against their spouse and against the the lord that led them you know in, <clears throat> that that caused them that hardness of heart to go off and commit adultery that moses jesus is saying it was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses realized that some people just would never be able to get past that, that he permitted them, he allowed them to divorce their wives. But Jesus is making it very, very clear here that that was never God's intent from the beginning. That's why he says that what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, God hates divorce. I want to say this. Just to be clear, he doesn't hate divorced people, okay? But God hates divorce because he knows what it does to people. He knows what it does to kids. He knows how it breaks the picture of how the marriage relationship is supposed to be this picture of Christ and the church. You know, marriage, being married together has often been described as as like two boards being nailed together. And when you pull those boards apart that have been nailed together, what you're left with is holes. It's disfigured. And in a sense, that's what, what God, he looks at the marriage, and when, it, when divorce happens, it leaves holes in people. It leaves holes in kids. And so Jesus is, is saying here, the heart of the problem is a heart problem. It's the hardness of your heart. And so that was the teaching of Jesus that Paul's referring to here. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians 7. Once again, turn back there. And let's look at verse 10 once again. Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But then he says this in verse 11. This is kind of interesting can be kind of confusing. But even if she does depart, what's Paul saying here? Paul seems to note that there are situations where a wife might say, I just can't live in this environment anymore. I can't handle this. I can't take this. I can't handle the way that, that he treats me. Now, I want you to note here that I'm not talking about it at this point in time. We're not talking about abuse. We're going to get to that in, in just a little bit the idea of abuse and what happens when that's happening in a marriage. But I'm talking about here just sometimes the tension in a marriage is so great that one person just says, I can't handle this right now. I'm done. I'm leaving and paul is not affirming i want I want you to note this paul is not affirming that decision he says no i i'm commanding not i but the lord a wife is not to depart but sometimes you know if even if she does depart though so he's not affirming it but but paul is a realist and he's saying i realize that sometimes this does happen. But I want you to note that Paul gives two options for the person who leaves. Option number one, remain unmarried. Just go the rest of your life and no longer get married. You're not free to divorce and you're not free to marry someone else. That's option number one. Option number two is be reconciled to your spouse. Paul says, look, if you leave, these are the two options. That you have. And then he says this. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So husbands if your wife bails. If she leaves. That doesn't give you the green light. To suddenly now divorce her. I want to pause here for a moment. And I want to share my opinion. I'm stating that this is my opinion. With you about separation. Separation. And I think that what I'm going to share does line up with the heart of Scripture. But this is what I have experienced in 36 years of pastoral ministry. It's my opinion that in extreme situations where the hurt is so deep and the tension is so strong, That it's like just constantly for both people, both spouses in the house. It's like walking on eggshells. It's my opinion that separation can be constructive if, and it's a big if, it's based on these conditions. Number one, both spouses are in agreement with the separation and that it's for the purpose of reconciliation. The idea being is like, you know, we're just always at each other, you know, right now when we're living together. So one of us is going to step out of this to kind of let the tension die so that we can come together several times during the week and work on this. But it's like we we need a break from this tension that is happening, okay? So number one, that separation can be constructive based on these conditions. If both spouses are in agreement that the purpose is for reconciliation. Number two, that both spouses are committed to work on the marriage. That both of them are saying, yeah, we recognize the tension here. We're recognized we just can't get past this, but we want to work on this. And so I'm going to step out so that we can come together in counseling and we can date and we can kind of begin to start over and we can work on this. So that's condition number two. Condition number three is that both agree to have their separation monitored by a pastor or a marriage mentor. Somebody who is going to call them on the carpet. Somebody who is going to say, hey, you're, you're, you know, you're in the flesh right now. Somebody that's going to be able to meet with them in that way. And condition number four, that it's not for too long. That it's not for too long. If those conditions are not a part of the separation process, my experience is that ninety nine point nine percent of the time that marriage will end in divorce. Someone will just give up and say, "I'm done. I'm done." They get separated. They get they they get to the point where they're you know begin to get comfortable being independent. They like not having you know that tension. So there are rare exceptions, I believe, where separation in, in a separation time in a marriage that is really, really having some very serious and severe problems can be helpful. But, but again, it's definitely the exception based on those conditions. And it's not the norm. And I've seen... Couples that have gone through that process and submitted themselves to the Lord, and they've submitted themselves to pastoral leadership and marriage mentorship, and I've seen them come out the other side of that and stay together and have their marriage be healed. But when they don't want to do that, and they separate 99.9% of the time, it ends in divorce. And unfortunately, I think there's way too many people today that are looking for ways to run out of their marriage in the church. Way too many people that are just like, this is way too hard. I don't want to do this. And they're looking for ways to run out rather than seeing that their marriage relationship is actually a tool that God is using to mold them and shape them into the image of Jesus. You see, you don't have to be married very long to discover that there are going to be times when your spouse will rub you the wrong way, okay? Everybody that's married that agrees with that, say amen, all right? (laughs) yeah, It happens. You're married a week or two, and suddenly you realize like she or he is rubbing you the wrong way. Now, this is so hilarious. There's times when I'm you know doing premarital premarital counseling with a usually it's a young couple that is this way. They're in la la land, you know, and and they're like I start talking like, hey, this is going to happen. You're going to find you know that that you're going to start to rub each other the wrong way, and they're looking at me and they got that look in their eyes and that you know they start to smile. It's like not us. We are just so in love. You know, that's not going to happen. We're going to be the exception, Pastor Rob. You know. And then a month or two or three weeks into their marriage, you know, they're calling me like, you were right. You know, what do we do? But, um, but marriage has oftentimes been compared to sandpaper that God uses to rub off the rough edges on our hearts. You know, Prior to getting married, I felt like I was an extremely unselfish guy. I mean, I devoted tons of my time to my church and serving the less fortunate. And in my mind, I thought, man, I am just so unselfish. I am so giving. I'm easy to get along with. And then I get married and marriage revealed just how selfish I really was. And I'll be honest with you, it was shocking to me. And I didn't like it. I mean, it was like God just just shined a big spotlight on my selfishness and the wickedness of my heart. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. And then we had kids, and he just magnified it even more. Because suddenly now I've got to share Denise with, with these kids. And, and many times she preferred them over me. And it's like, I don't like this. And it upset me, but it also made me uncomfortable because I was uncomfortable that like, man, I'm a wretch. I'm, I'm not as strong in the Lord as I thought I was, you know, and it just began to, you know, just God began to use that to work on my heart. And here's a big lesson for those of you who are married. Here's a big lesson to learn in marriage is that when your spouse is doing something that upsets you. When they are rubbing you the wrong way, don't think, what is wrong with them? See, that's our natural tendency. What is wrong with him? What is wrong with her? Don't think that way, but instead ask, Lord, what's wrong with me? Why is this bugging me so much? What are you trying, why, Why? you know, they're rubbing me the wrong way. What's the rough edge that right now you're wanting to use in this to to change me and to deal with me? You see, marriage is like being on the potter's wheel, and the potter is sometimes when the clay is on the wheel, he's pounding it. And he's pushing on it. And no one likes to be pushed or pounded, right? We're not like, more, just more. Come on, bring it on. No, we're like, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. But the pushing and pounding is necessary. And God is using it to make you and me more like Jesus. And that's part of what the marriage process is about. It's to mold us and shape us. So don't run Don't seek to bail. Hang in there because God is working. He's in the process of making you, what he says in in Ephesians 2.10, his masterpiece. And that masterpiece is going to more and more begin to look like Jesus. But in that rare situation where there's a lot of damage has been done and the trust has been broken... And you're just like, man, I need a break. Paul says, hey, if the person departs, if they're like, just I need a a break from here. Here's their two options. Remain unmarried or be reconciled. So that's Paul's instruction to two believers who are having issues and problems. But what about when a, a Christian is married to an unbeliever? Well, that's what he begins to deal with next. Look at verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Now we dealt with this last week, this phrase that that Paul says here. And when he says, you know, now to the rest, I'm saying this, not Jesus. He's not circumventing what Jesus said. He's not undermining what Jesus said. But what Paul's saying is this, I'm going to deal with something right now that Jesus didn't deal with. Jesus never talked about a Christian married to, an un- to a non-Christian, but Paul is going to deal with that now, the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And so he says in verse 12, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman who has a husband who does not believe, and if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now I'm sure that in Corinth, there were those in the church there, like in the church today, who have come to Christ. I know several people in this situation in our church. They've come to Christ But their spouses are still unbelievers. Their spouses are still not saved. And in Corinth, I mean, that was, like I said, a very wicked city that they were living in. And I've counseled enough people who are in that type of situation where they've gotten saved, but their spouse still remains an unbeliever, that I know how hard it is. I've heard story after story. And it just, it breaks your heart because in becoming a Christian, your life has been transformed. I mean, your priorities and your practices and your perspectives have all begun to be reshaped by the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is doing this work inside of your heart. And you're gaining new friends who also share in the same love for the Lord and practices and and, and the word of God. And and so it's hard when some Suddenly, the thing that is the most important to you and the most precious to you, your relationship with Jesus can't be shared with this person who has been the most special person in your life. And it can become frustrating and it's even worse when that unbelieving spouse suddenly starts to express animosity or even anger towards your faith in Jesus. Because suddenly now that that Christian spouse isn't interested anymore in doing the things that you used to do. You're not interested anymore in in getting high. You're not interested in, you know, going to to you're not comfortable going to the places that you used to do and and the things that you used to do. Because now, you know, the Holy Spirit inside of you is saying, Hey, you know, you shouldn't be here. And you're like, you you sense that and you feel that and you're not comfortable in that. And oftentimes when you're like, hey, I don't want to go do that. If you want to go do that. You know, fine, but, but I, I don't want to go do that. And I would encourage you if you're in that situation to come up with different alternatives. You know, another hobby, something that you guys can begin to do together that isn't going to be, you know, sinful for you, but might be comfortable for him or her. That's the unbeliever. But oftentimes the problem is is they don't like that. You know, John said that the the darkness hates the light because the light exposes their evil deeds. And oftentimes that's what begins to happen. The the person who's still in darkness starts going, man, I just don't like this and they're no fun anymore and they're cramping my style and, you know, and all of this. And so they start to get get angry and there's this animosity. And then here's what often happens. That believer living in that situation can start longing for a marriage relationship with somebody that loves Jesus. And you know, it's a natural longing, but it doesn't make it right. You know, they start looking at their friends who are Christian couples and going, I wish I had that. I wish my husband treated me like that. I wish I wish we could sit in church together and worship the Lord and read our Bibles together and you know all of that. And so they, they start, you know, wanting that and longing for that. And then there's that temptation to just want to bail on the marriage relationship. But Paul says, Look, being unequally yoked, and that's what it is. When a Christian is married to a non-Christian, Paul is saying this, being unequally yoked is not grounds for divorce, even though it's hard. It's not grounds for divorce. So if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married to you and live with you, Paul says, don't divorce them, period. Now the obvious reason why Paul would say that is because, like we said, God hates divorce. God is so into the marriage covenant, and when there hasn't been adultery or sexual immorality that is taking place, you know, there, there's not a biblical reason to leave that marriage. And so those are the obvious reason, but there's another reason why Paul is advocating here that you don't bail, but you stay. And he talks about that in verse 14 when he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Paul says the unbeliever is sanctified in the marriage, what does that mean? Is Paul saying that that person is saved? No, because that's why he refers to them as an unbeliever. Only those who have put their their faith, who have believed in Jesus, are saved. So, what does he mean here? Well, the word sanctified, we you know, Paul uses it a lot in referring to us as Christians that we've been set apart to unto God. But the word simply means to be set apart. And what Paul is saying here is this, is the unbelieving spouse is set apart for special gospel influence while they are in that relationship. Well, they're married to that Christian, there's a way better chance and a way better situation for them to encounter Jesus who is living in you than they would if they were living somewhere else with a bunch of unbelievers. So they're set apart for that gospel influence. Peter talked about this uh, as well in 1 Peter chapter 3. Writing to the wives, he said, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. Now, when he says that, that could mean somebody who's not a Christian, or it could even mean somebody who is a Christian who isn't obeying, isn't following the word of God. So he says, even if some do not obey the word, that they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, and here's how, when they observe your chase." Conduct accompanied by fear. That's the same idea that Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that the unbeliever is set apart. They're, they're sanctified, set apart for special gospel influence by the conduct of their spouse. Not nagging them, you know, not putting Bible verses on the toilet seat. Not putting the Ten Commandments in their lunch sack when you send them off to, you know, work that day. No just living out your faith, loving them the way that Jesus does and seeking to be that example that your conduct hopefully will begin to have such an effect on them that they'll begin to see the change in you and realize what they are missing. So Paul says, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified. They're set apart for this special gospel influence and the kids he says also are holy and not unclean. Now, what does that mean? Again, it's the similar idea as with the spouse, that the children living in the house with two unbelieving parents, think about this, children living in the house with two unbelieving parents, they're, they're devoid of gospel influence in that home. No one's bringing the gospel in that home. No one's talking to them about Jesus in that home. And unfortunately, they are potentially also going to be subjected to a lot of things, those kids will be, that are not godly, that go against God's will and God's heart and go against the scriptures. Things that their parents are maybe doing that are unpleasing to the Lord. But when there is a believer in the home, there's great opportunity for gospel influence to happen in a way and in that way the children are holy that word holy means it's it's another way of saying that they're set apart for influence in the gospel they're set apart to have the opportunity to meet Jesus and I'll say this if you are in that situation today if you're married to an unbeliever I want to encourage you bring your kids to church Pray with them. Do Bible stories with them. Now you say, well, what if my spouse says he doesn't want me to do that? Aren't I supposed to submit? Because oftentimes in this type of situation, it's a you know, wife. But even if it isn't, but that, I get that question. Aren't, aren't I supposed to submit? Well, this would be one of those situations where defiance... I'll talk today about defiance. Um, this is one of those situations where defiance would be in order because you would be needing to say like the apostles did in Acts chapter 5 when they were told you don't talk about Jesus, that they're saying, look, we, we're gonna, we need to obey God and not man. And the scripture is very, very clear. The mandate given to us as parents, as Christian parents, is that we are to raise our kids in the ways of, of the Lord. So you need to do that. You need to say, you know what, honey, I love you, but um, I'm going to bring my, I'm bringing the kids to church. I'm going to take them with me. My mom did that. Took my brother and I, even though I didn't want to (laughs) go. She would drag us, you know, off to church with her. And so you you do that. And ultimately, though, your child is going to have to choose for themselves when they reach that age of accountability that they're going to have to make that choice of whether or not they're going to serve Jesus or not. But if you are in that type of situation, you have a tremendous opportunity to influence those children while they are young. So Paul deals with the situation of an unbeliever who wants to stay But what if the unbeliever departs? Well, that's what he deals with next in verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. The unbeliever departs, let him depart. You're not under bondage. What would be the bondage that Paul is referring to? Well, this points us back to verse 11 when he says that even if, a person departs from the marriage, the two options are remain unmarried or be reconciled. Now, if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave you because they just can't handle your Christianity anymore, it, it would be bondage for you to live in a state where, you know, you're like, hey, my spouse has left me. They want nothing to do with me, but they're not going to divorce me. They don't want to divorce me. They don't want to pay for a divorce. I hear that all the time. So they, they're just, they've just left. What am I supposed to do? Paul is saying in that situation, you're free. You are free. They have left that marriage, but you are not in bondage to stay in it. You're not in bondage. The bondage would be, you mean I gotta stay the rest of my life unmarried? I gotta stay the rest of my life in limbo, like wondering, like, are they ever gonna come back again, you know, type of thing? Paul says, no, 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 you're, you're free. You are free. You're not in, in um, you know, bondage to that. Now, here's what I wanna say, though. If that happens to you, Don't file the next day. (laughs) Don't be like, all right, they're gone. No, don't, don't file the next day. Give the Lord an opportunity to work. Give the Lord an opportunity to work on their heart because maybe that unbelieving spouse, once they leave, will come to that place where they start to realize what they have. And what they miss, like the prodigal son, maybe they'll get to the place in their pigpen that they come to their senses. And that's the point of what Paul says in verse 16 when he says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And that's the heart of the Lord. So if the unbeliever departs, Paul says, let him go. And if they want to stay departed and they're just like, you know, I don't want anything to do with you, but I don't want to divorce you because it costs too much money. Paul says, look, you're not in bondage to that. God wants you to live in peace. You're free. Because they've departed. Now, there's one last thing that I want to touch on here. And I want you to listen very closely. So if you're if starting to nod off, give them a good elbow. Say, Pastor Rob told me to do it, okay? Because <laughs> I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm going to say right now. Here's the question. I've had to deal with this a lot. Does departure have to be physical? Here's what I mean by that. When Paul says if they depart, does that mean that they move out of the house? Or can a departure happen even though they're still in the house. So the question is, is does the departure have to be physically leaving? And I think the, the answer to that, again, this is my opinion, is no. You see, sometimes people will leave a marriage emotionally and they'll leave a marriage in every other way before they have actually left it Physically and the christian you know in that type of situation where they're living with somebody who is just checked out wants nothing to do with them they're just living under the same roof they're sleeping in different rooms you know they they're just you know it's it's all this tension and and and, and so they're just kind of living you know that person's just chosen to kind of live a separate life from you but still under your roof the christian then feels in Bondage. I mean, it's this horrible situation where they feel trapped. And I'll give you an example. I once met with a woman, counseled this, this lady, whose husband was not a Christian. He didn't spend time with her. He didn't appreciate her. And he would often leave for weeks at a time and not even tell her where he was. He would just go off. And she came to find out that he was hanging out with this biker gang that also had a bunch of prostitutes that were connected with it. And he would go off on rides with them and go off with them. And and he wouldn't tell her where he was or where he was going. He would just be off on some road trip with the gang. And then he'd show back up. And I think he knew... Enough of the Bible because he would always claim, I've never cheated on you. And so she felt stuck. And she came to me and she was this great lady. And in his mind, he he realized that. He had in her somebody who would keep his house clean, who would do his laundry, who would cook for him, who would have sex with him when, you know, he wanted that to happen. Basically, he had a housekeeper with sexual benefits, and he's like, I'm not giving that up. So he would tell her, I've never cheated on you. Because he knew that unless she knew that he cheated, that in her mind, she felt like I can't divorce him. I can't leave him. Well, she came to me saying, I don't know what to do. He says he hasn't committed adultery. And the first thing I told her was go get tested for an STD. And then I told her and quit quit sleeping with him until that test comes back. And then I said, let me talk to him. And so I called him and he actually verified what she was telling me was true. That's basically how he was living. And so I told her, I said, you know what? He left your marriage a long time ago. He lives under the same roof because you're taking care of him but he's left your marriage in every other way and everything that he is doing, even though he's telling you I've never cheated on you, everything that he's doing and everyone he's hanging out with would be an indication that that's probably not true. So I told her that she was free to leave that marriage because this went on for years and years and years and file for divorce and she did. So that's a very extreme scenario where somebody hasn't departed physically, left the, the property, but departed in their heart and every other way a long time ago. Here's, here's another scenario. This is maybe more common. And that is in a situation where, uh, this is a more common situation where the evidence of, of departure isn't physical. They haven't physically left. That we have counseled women who have been in abusive relationships, with someone who claimed to be a Christian. And I want to just say this, that when there is physical abuse, listen, you are free to leave, to get out of that situation. Whether your, your spouse is a believer or not, you are, we would encourage you, if you came in and met with one of our pastors, we would encourage you, you need to get somewhere safe. You need to get out of that situation where you are in danger. God has not called you to be a punching bag. And if your spouse, believer or not, refuses to get help, refuses to you know come in for counseling, you're free to divorce that person. Because what, even though they haven't left... The premises, they've left the covenant in every way. And God, as I said before, does not call you to be a punching bag. And that person who is treating you like they've departed from the marriage covenant, even if physically they're still residing over the same roof. And on top of that, they're acting. They might profess to be a Christian, but if you have somebody beating you up, they're acting like an unbeliever. And this is heavy, what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, and these things I command... That they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's what Paul said about a man who wasn't taking care of his family. Paul's like, you know what? You are worse. You've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. So somebody that's being abusive, I think, falls into that category magnified by 10. That's for physical abuse. What about verbal abuse? Now, again, I want to be very careful here. Because I'm not talking about, when I say verbal abuse, I am not talking about, my husband got mad and yelled at me today. That's probably happened to 90% of the women in our church, including my wife, okay? <laughs> We're broken people. We're sinners. The flesh comes out. So I'm not talking about somebody yelled at you. But I'm talking about situations where the verbal abuse is constant. And it's degrading. And it's vulgar. Vulgar. And it's been going on for a really, really long time. And it's escalating. And usually in those type of scenarios, the husband is very controlling. And he's very manipulative. And he'll rage on her. Sometimes it's a reversal. Sometimes it's a wife to the husband, but usually it's the guy. He will rage and then he'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And he'll cry and he'll buy gifts only to blow up again a day or two later. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, there's a pattern that starts to get formed, that leaves the Christian spouse, usually the wife, feeling beat down and afraid and frustrated. And somehow, because of the manipulation, it leaves her feeling like it's her fault. I've seen this over and over and over and over again. That she is living with, if she was just, you fill in the blank, he wouldn't act like this. And that's his excuse for why he acts like this. And, and it's part of this whole manipulative game that, that happens in this control. And even though that guy might claim to be a Christian, he is surely not acting like a Christian. And it's my opinion, one that is shared by many, many pastors, that that Christian spouse who is enduring that type of constant torment is not called by the Lord to stay in that situation. The abusive spouse, though professing to be a Christian, isn't acting like a Christian And although they haven't physically left the house, they've left in every other way. And I personally believe the Lord doesn't call a woman to have to wait until her husband gets to the point that he starts knocking her around to say enough. Because usually that's what it escalates to when you start feeling that you are in a situation that is unsafe for you and your kids, if your husband will not leave, if he refuses to get counsel, you leave and we'll help you get into a safe environment as a church family. And sometimes it takes a person leaving. It takes a person saying enough. If you're not going to leave, me and the kids, we're going over here to bring that rebellious spouse to their senses where they finally wake up and come to Jesus. But sometimes, unfortunately, that type of situation, when there's that type of abuse happening, again, not saying husband got mad at me today yelled at me because because I say that because there's a lot of people who are looking for ways to just get out of their marriages and they'll look for you know oh my husband's verbally abusive and he's not being verbally abusive he might have a temper that comes out every now and then but I'm talking about It's constant, it's degrading, it's vulgar, it's escalating, it's manipulative. You know, that's what verbal abuse looks like. And when somebody is in a place where they're just like, you know, the problem's not me, it's her. And unfortunately, I've had to deal with that. Many of our pastors have had to deal with that. In that type of situation, when a spouse, even if they profess to be a Christian, although they're not acting like one, there isn't the fruit that is evident. Even though they might come here and worship and all this, but there's a whole other thing happening at home. In that type of situation, if that person is unwilling, and they're just like, problem's not mine, that that could be And again, it's not something to jump into quickly, but that could be grounds for what Paul is saying here for divorce in the sense that, hey, you are not in bondage to live in that type of situation because even though they haven't physically departed, they've departed in every other way. So... In closing here, I want to just say, I want to emphasize again, the Lord's heart being communicated here to the Christian spouse who's married to an unbelieving spouse. Don't seek to get out of that relationship. Hang in there. Because the Lord wants to use you in the life of your unbelieving spouse. And you just never know. And I've known, you know, ladies and men in our fellowship here who have been Married to an unbeliever for 20 years and they're still not saved and they found a way to, to make it work and find those things that they can do together and they still enjoy you know, that relationship with one another even though there's that one thing that, that is missing and in their heart of hearts and they still pray every single day that their spouse is going to come to Jesus and we pray with them. That's God's ultimate desire is to use the believing spouse and or the kids to get the unbeliever to come to faith in Christ. That's exactly what happened to my dad. As I mentioned before, my wife, my my wife, my mom used to bring my brother and I to church with her, this Baptist church that she was going to. And every single Sunday at our house was a war because... My dad was watching football, and I wanted to watch football with my dad. But mom was taking me to church. And I was probably 10 years old and at the time that this happened. I knew it was important to my mom. But we were on a, a trip and, and we could have gotten a car accident. And you know, we didn't. And my dad you know, makes this statement. He says, man, we can thank God that we're still alive. He was Catholic. So he was like, we can thank God that we're still alive. And I said, yeah, dad, one way that we can you know, thank God is by going to church every Sunday. And when I, and to this day, I'm like, why did I say that? I hated going, you know? <laughs> and my dad said, all right, I'll start going. But the next Sunday, he didn't go. That weekend, he took me and a friend of his and, and uh, his son, and we went down to Mexico, and we're camping down in Mexico, and my dad almost drowned. So two near-death experiences, two weekends in a row, God was getting my dad's attention, and he started going to church. And it was through going to church and hearing the gospel for the very first time in his life that he got saved. And this radical transformation happened in him. And the rest is history as we, he has left an incredible legacy in our family. But that was my mom's faithfulness to say, I'm taking the kids to church, whether you like it or not. <laughs> And God used me to say to him, you should come with us. So that's God's heart in that. Is that he really, really, you know, is, is longing for. And he realizes, hey, your spouse, your kids, they're set apart for gospel influence. So hang in there. And if you're in that situation, I want to encourage you. We know it's hard. When we have Thrive Nights here, marriage fellowship nights, you know, I know that's hard. But I will say this, and I do want to encourage you. Our Thrive Nights, and for those who don't know what that is, we kind of turn our sanctuary into a big banquet hall. We serve a great meal, and we have... Um, Some speakers that talk about marriage, and it's just a really, really great night. And it's one of the nights, it's one of the events that we have here that probably the most unbelievers come to, as people seem to be able to get their spouses to come to that because most men like good food, especially when it's cheap. (laughs) And most people are interested in, oh, here's something about marriage, prove our marriage. And God uses that, and he works in that. So hang in there. Hang in there. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for just the heart that we hear from you and from Paul as you're speaking through Paul and through the words of Jesus as it relates to marriage and divorce and separation, and things like abuse. And Lord, I pray for those marriages in this fellowship that are on shaky ground right now. Lord, you made it very, very clear that the heart of the problem is a heart problem. And usually it's two people who have hardened their hearts toward each other and toward you. Or one person in the relationship who has hardened their heart. And God, I just want to pray right now that in those situations in, in our church family here, that God, you would break through the hardness. That you would help people to see the beauty of that relationship that you have brought together and the potential that it has to be used by you in such an incredible way. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are married that you would help us to realize that you're seeking right now in our lives to use our spouse to reveal those rough edges that you want to rub off to make us more like Jesus. And God, I pray that we wouldn't run from that. That we wouldn't seek to get off the potter's wheel when the pushing and pounding is we're feeling because of the tension or because of the struggle and the wrestle that is going on. But Lord, that we would lean into you and allow you to do that work in us. Lord, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for the blessing that it is. And we thank you, Lord, for the amazing picture that it can be of Jesus and his church and his bride. And, Lord, we want our marriages to reflect that in a world that today doesn't believe that marriage even works. Lord, may the marriages represented in this church be a testimony of this is what a union can be like when Jesus is at the center and when he's the focus Lord I thank you for my brothers and sisters here tonight and those watching online who have um, just patiently sat through this and and digested this and God I pray that um, we would now just be doers of the word and not hearers only that we would walk Lord in your truth